September comes and our gardens change. The leaves begin to change from green to yellow. The annuals start to die back. We plant our spring flowering bulbs and we most certainly enjoy the warm weather before it turns. But that doesn't mean we can't get loads of joy from our gardens. And that's what this month's edition of The Garden Magazine is all about. We'll look at some bulbs that are a must-have for a late summer spectacular. With their dramatic, great big vertical spikes of flowers, and those spikes can contain hundreds of individual waxy flowers, which are loved by insects, bees and butterflies. And as schools hopefully head back, we'll discuss how horticulture is one course worth taking. What am I going to be doing today? I'm going to be learning alongside such and such expert. And we would just sort of have to pinch ourselves and say, yeah, we really are here. <laughs> this is amazing what we're doing. Plus, we'll meet the new person leading the RHS through the next few years. I'm really looking forward to being a little part of the journey to help them go um, from better to better, to bloom even more. There's so much to look forward to in this month's edition of The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. And in this show, I like to introduce you to the people behind the stories in our monthly publication for RHS members. At the end of July, it was announced that we appointed our 22nd president, Keith Weed. Keith wasn't just chosen for his horticulturally biased name, of course. He was actually the chief marketing officer for Unilever, a company he'd been at for more than 30 years. And he brings not only a huge amount of commercial experience with him, but also a sincere love of gardening. I was really pleased to sit down with Keith recently at his home just down the road from RHS Garden Wisley to talk about his new role and what he's hoping to bring to the society. So Keith, you're just about to become the 22nd president of the RHS. Tell me why now and why did you want to become the president? Well, firstly, a passion for plants and gardens and all things sort of green and outdoors. So um, an easy area for me to be passionate about. But I think that the RHS is at a, a really important moment right now. There's been a tremendous investment by the charity in uh, gardens and a new garden arriving in Bridgewater near Manchester. And I think it's a, a fabulous opportunity to sort of build on the great work that's been done over recent years, but also to look forward to the role of gardening in people's lives. And we're sitting here in, in your beautiful garden, and clearly you have a, a very um, genuine passion and interest in gardening. And has that been a lifetime, or has that been more recent in terms of your, your interest? So uh, lifetime interest, but I have to say it started all around vegetables. My mother was a very keen gardener. The whole family was sort of encouraged to be outdoors. But what's expanded uh, since then is the joy of gardening on a broader base. And I suppose, funny, it is the, the sort of the magic and logic of gardens. The magic, of course, what you can create and whether it be topiary, I like, I like the structure of topiary or, or spaliers, uh, apples, as you saw, through to the sort of the looser side of, of the wildflower meadow. That whole magic side is about, but the logic behind it, there is a science behind gardening. Mm. So that sort of magic and logic of gardening, I think, is, is very rewarding. But that's a lovely way of putting a lot of what the RHS is doing and should be doing, especially in the logic sense, because so much of our work is defined by science and supported by science and understanding. 
Do you think there's a, a greater need than ever now in the general population, general population of gardeners, that they need to understand the logic in it to really enjoy the magic of it? Yeah, I think so. But there's also a bigger logic coming on. So I'm a great believer in science. Actually, by training, I'm an engineer um, and I'm actually a fellow of the mechanical engineers, believe it or not. But so there's a sort of a logic science side to me. And I believe the, the role of science in the world of the environment, the world of gardening is going to get more important particularly the challenges we have right now around climate change are going to continue and gardening is changing very practically. People realise you have greater periods of time, even in the UK, where it's not raining and that will increase so. So you know, making sure that you collect water and can use water in a more responsible way on one side, but through to challenges you know, on peat and pesticides and plastic, you know, all the environmental challenges as well. And I believe that gardeners are, are very much guardians of our, our future when it comes to, to the outdoor space. And we, of course, are going to see more building in the UK. And I think it's going to be more important to make our gardens work harder for ourselves and our enjoyment and our health and being out there, but also for the environment as well, right through to biodiversity and the biodiversity of, of plants. And I think it's a huge opportunity to bring younger people who have a much greater passion and commitment to addressing some of these challenges in the environment. Well, look, your, your enthusiasm is completely infectious. It really is. Give us a vision in a few years' time. If we were sitting here in two, three, four years' time, how different would the RHS feel, do you think, in a few years' time, if you get your way and, and the working with all of, all of us RHS employees? Well, the first thing to be really clear is we have an awful lot right now to continue. So I think a new president, new leadership is an opportunity for continuity and change. Let's first we'll start with the, with the continuity, because... We have uh, invested significant amounts of money in the gardens and in building some fantastic new science facilities at Wisley, for example. And I think the first thing we need to do is to make all that work brilliantly well for our members. You know, we are here to serve our members. But then, of course, the opportunity for change. And so one of the things I'm genuinely interested in is looking at a multi-stakeholder approach. How can the RHS help that diversity of different nurseries and, and plants. You know, I'm currently immersing myself in understanding the industry better. I would say that I'm a keen gardener, but I, I don't know the industry well. But I would take my multi-stakeholder approach to not uh, only the sort of the nurseries and the horticultural issues, but right the way through to government and, and trying to work out how we can work with government so and they can work with us as far as uh, enhancing the whole purpose of horticulture in, in the UK. So look, uh, it wouldn't be a gardening podcast without asking you a very basic question. We've walked around your garden today and it is a magnificent garden. You, you underplay your, your knowledge and ability. But what, what's your standout plant or what's your standout area for you that personally means the most in your garden? Well, if I had to choose a plant, it would be Digitalis, uh, the foxglove. And why? I think foxglove, to me, does the perfect thing. It can, it can be a border and look fabulous there, but you can equally take it into a more wild uh, setting on the edge of the, the meadow, and it can look fabulous there. Uh, and I, I do like the unkept. One side would be very structured. As you can see, I, I've got you know, topiary, and I, I really enjoy that sort of shape and structure. But on the other side, that wildness there. And as far as gardens per se um well the garden i'd have to pick which i know so well seven miles from where i live would be wisley uh, wisley is fabulous 
it is getting better and better. And I'm really looking forward to being a little part of the journey, not just for Wisley, but all the other gardens of the RHS uh, to help them go um, from better to better, to bloom even more. Keith Weed. As well as reading more about Keith's appointment in this month's magazine, there's plenty more to sink your teeth into. Marchant's Gardens and Nursery in East Sussex is a place that many people will have heard of, and its owner, Graham Goff, takes us through some of the atmospheric and successful planting combinations he's achieved. In a way, it's a kind of a a shortcut guide to getting perfect autumn borders. There are plenty of ideas to steal from the garden, and the photos by Richard Bloom show just how gorgeous an autumn garden can be. Other stalwarts of an autumn garden are hydrangeas, ever popular and seemingly ever expanding in their range of colours and shapes. And we give six pages over to a summary of a recent RHS plant trial and the many cultivars that have received the coveted award of garden merit. So to colchicums, these are autumn flowering corms that shouldn't be confused with crocus, but they look pretty similar. They've kind of got lovely really goblets of purple or white cup-shaped flowers, and they're a delight at this time of year. There's something pretty special. We're actually publishing a new monograph book on this genus, so we asked one of its authors, Christopher Gray Wilson, to write us an article about the best of the best colchicums to grow in our gardens. We also focus on the Cotswold Wildlife Park and Gardens, a tropical garden in Nottinghamshire, and perhaps for me the most exciting of all, a very special picture set over six pages of the famous plant expert Helen Dillon and her new garden in Dublin. It really is a must-see and must-read article. But have you ever wondered where such talented gardeners, writers, commentators and horticulturists learn their craft? There are many ways into the industry, of course, but one route is through an RHS qualification. We're known the world over for our excellent educational offerings. Take our Diploma in Practical Horticulture, for example. It's long been a perfect start for those looking for a rewarding career in gardening. Award-winning author Holly Farrell studied with the RHS, and in this month's magazine, she explains the history and the value of the organisation's role in education. For Holly, her RHS experience has a very special place in her heart. I've written about Wisley and its graduates from the Wisley Diploma because I'm one myself. I was there from 2008 to 2010 and I thought that what people were going on to do from gaining the Wisley Diploma were really interesting roles. There's people who are working in uh, horticultural education, garden media, as well as head gardeners and curators and people managing horticultural shows and all sorts of different things. I was a history graduate, actually. I had very little interest in gardens or gardening for most of my life. But after discovering a love of horticulture through volunteering with the National Trust in their gardens, I retrained. And as soon as I determined on horticulture as a career, Wisley was the goal. Wisley was the only option. And I was going to get there hell or high water. And I got in, which was great. (laughs) We spent one day a week in college learning all the basic theory and then the in-depth theory of the horticultural science, soil science, pest and disease control and an identification, all of those things go into then what you're learning in the garden every day when you're just training and pruning and working and weeding. 
you rotate through all the different departments so you get experience in so many different aspects of horticulture you know all the gardeners who are there are leaders in their field and you're working alongside them every day also I met my husband at Wisley (laughs) within about 24 hours of arriving at Wisley some of the year above students took us all out the new recruits out for a drink at the local pub and I met a member of the Wisley staff there who also started that week and two days later we went on our first date and we got married four years after that. <laughs> Education has always, has always been part of the RHS's ethos. It's always been about not just creating amazing gardens, but also creating amazing gardeners and training the next generation. That goes back 200 years to when the RHS had its first garden in Chiswick. And then you come all the way up through the ages to the modern day when obviously we've got all these amazing different courses that people can do. One interesting alumni was one of my fellow students. He was in the same year group as me, Sean Harkin, and he's had a great career since Wisley. He also proves that being a head gardener doesn't have to mean going to work on a country estate and living in the middle of nowhere, because he went on to be the National Trust's first gardener in residence in Manchester. So his job there was to green the city, essentially, and institute various urban gardening initiatives. Then he went from there to be the head of the gardens team at Kensington Palace. And it was then that he managed to make the front pages of a lot of the newspapers because he designed and installed the White Garden in memory of Princess Diana. And so when he was showing the Dukes, William and Harry around it, those pictures made the front pages. And then he's now the head gardener in a temple in the city of London. I love gardening so much and it's helped me in so many different ways. I love the peace that I get from being outside and being in the garden. I just want to get that message out to as many people as I can. And I try and do that with my books. So next year, I'll have out a book called Plants for Healing for the Chelsea Physic Garden. For an all-round, incredibly in-depth and expert foundation in horticulture, you've got to go to Wisley. It sounds really corny, but a friend, Sue, Sue Moss and I, when we moved to Wisley, we would find ourselves having, well, we, we called them the Wisley moment, So we would be walking to work through the gardens first thing in the morning from the accommodation that that you get as a student on the far side of the gardens. And, you know, the early morning light coming through the plants and the trees and thinking, well, what am I going to be doing today? I'm going to be learning alongside such and such expert. And we would just sort of have to pinch ourselves and say, yeah, we really are here. (laughs) This is amazing what we're doing. Aren't we lucky?
Holly Farrell. One thing we at the Garden Magazine pride ourselves on is our photographic plates. These are where we really celebrate a plant in all its glory, showing it off from many angles alongside other selections or other similar plants to help you really understand the subtle differences on offer. In this month's magazine, we look at Eucomis, also known as Pineapple Lily. You don't see them that often in gardens, but they create late summer drama in borders and containers alike. They actually look pretty tropical and quite exotic, so they're a real showstopper when you do come across them. A recent RHS plant trial identified the best ones to choose, and I spoke to Alan Street, chair of the Eucomis Trial Assessment Forum, to learn more about these spectacular summer blooms. Alan, you've written the article all about Eucomis for us. What is it that you love about them so much? Well, I've written down some words here. I was thinking about them. I don't like the word architectural because I see lots of gardeners use that word. And what does it mean? I'd rather have the words unusual, different, exotic, and most of all, dramatic. Because when you see them, when we've taken them to the shows or I give talks in the autumn with cut flower, people say, what is that? Because they've never seen it before. So it's, it's something of a stranger in the garden, but it's always, um, I think, rather enchanting and people are drawn to them. They're rather strange flowers with this tuft of leaves on the top of the flower, hence the name pineapple lily. They're just something different that people haven't seen very much, really, although they were, uh, have been around for 300 years since they were first mm. introduced from South Africa. You don't see them very much, and we hope that the article in the garden will kindle a love for them. So how long have you been growing them? Because you're nursery manager at Avon Bulbs, but have you been growing them before that or not? We did grow them. When I first started, it's my 41st year at Avon. Blimey, I thought you were only about 35, Alan. At Avon Bulbs. I started very young. But funnily enough, the last article I did on Eucomis was 25 years ago, and that was for the garden in the mid-90s. But they've come on a a way since then. When we first started Avon Bulbs, there were just two or three varieties available grown in Holland mostly, Um, but Mm. since then there's been a bit of breeding going on around the world in New Zealand and the west coast of America, and, you know, the weather's changed, the winters are milder, generally speaking, and although they were first thought to be not hardy when they were introduced, now we find they're fully hardy bulbs in England with a little bit of protection. Just explain to us, what would you say their season of interest is from both flower and leaf? Well, of course, they... They come from South Africa, and so they don't come up in in English spring until quite late, until the soil has warmed up. So you won't see the leaves pushing through the ground until mid to late May. Normally when we come back from the Chelsea Flower Show, they're only a few inches high. And really, by the middle of August, they're starting, and they go right through to the middle of September, even the end of September, with their dramatic, great big vertical spikes of flowers... And those spikes can contain hundreds of individual waxy flowers, which are loved by insects, bees and butterflies. And then, of course, you've got the seed heads after that. Uh, They last a long time in in seed with great big shiny seed heads right the way down the flower stem. And they will last right through until October, even November, until the first frost comes. Because they're one of those plants, aren't they, that when you look at them, you you sort of think that they probably do love dry conditions. They're a bit like dioramas or something. They're they're beautiful and exotic, but actually they're not dry desert plants, are they? If you feel the stems, you feel the the tuft of leaves on the top and the leaves themselves, they're very fleshy. And although we grow all ours outside here on our clay soil in mid-Lambrook, on a hot day in July or August, without a cloud in the sky, 
the leaves flag. The last few summers when it has been very dry, we've had to water them, even on our clay soil. So if you've got a very sandy or chalky soil, they probably wouldn't really flourish on those soils. You'd have to grow them in a big pot and give them water. They're good, really, for a mixed border, front of border. Some of the bigger ones, of course, have to go further back. Some of the bigger species, Eucomis pallidiflora, they're up to four or five feet high and, and as much across. So they do want space. They don't want to be crowded out. I mean, they'd look good with other summer flowering plants to come after them. I'd like to have some annual cosmos in them because the leaf shape is totally different, the ferny yeah, foliage. Lovely. I'd like to grow them with actias, uh, with a bronzy foliage, or dahlias would flower at the same time. Of course, the verbenas and goras would be nice, or hesperanthas that they used to be, schizostris, uh, they would flower at the same time. I think the best thing is to get a different contrast. Remember, these uh, eucomas, they have big, strong, vertical flower spikes with a tuft of leaves at the top and big, fleshy leaves. So you want to contrast something, maybe a silver, a grey, a different colour form in foliage, maybe a purple-leaved dahlia would be quite nice with them. We've put the um, eucomis on our plant plates and it's on bright pink and it really does show the plants to their real four doesn't it it does and it's well in fact one i wouldn't say some of them have quite that color but i mean it's a good contrast because most of them are a lot of them have pink or purple or crimson in their flower coloration and of course the flowers are very waxy they last for weeks and weeks in flower I just love how passionately Alan talks about Eucomis, and he certainly piqued my interest. I've actually never grown them before, but now I know from Alan the very best way to succeed with them. They'll be on the shopping list certainly for next year. For more on today's topics, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Next month, we'll be looking forward to the October edition of the magazine. And I'm looking forward to reading more from Mark Diacono with his ongoing taste series. And this time he's focusing on pears. Anna Pavord is writing about seed heads. And Phil Clayton visits that spectacular garden, Sezincote, in the Cotswolds. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Chris Young. Music